It will inquire into the individual and his activities before the terrorist attack, including, uh, of course, uh, a look at agencies. Uh, it will look at the actions of the SIS, the GCSB, police, customs, immigration, and any other relevant government departments or agencies. What I can say today is that there will be a focus on whether our intelligence community was concentrating its resources appropriately and whether there were any reports that could or should have been alerted them to this attack. The lawyer who helped the Islamic Women's Council compile their submission to the Royal Commission into the mosque attacks says she is sickened by the way their fears were dismissed. For the four years since ISIS became known around the world, Every Muslim in a Muslim minority country became equated with ISIS. The police and the NZSIS were not monitoring the terrorists because the threat of right-wing extremism had not been analysed and assessed by the New Zealand intelligence community until mid-2018, merely months before the attack. I'm Emil Donovan. This is The Detail. 634 days ago, 51 Muslim worshippers were killed in shootings at two mosques in Christchurch. Tomorrow, the long-awaited Royal Commission into the mosque shootings will release its findings to the public, and it will make for chastening reading. It will show up shortcomings, prejudice, short-sightedness. And we know this because last week the Muslim community made public its submission into that inquiry. An investigation by the Federation of Islamic Associations suggests the country's security agencies downplayed the threat of a possible terror attack in New Zealand and misinformed the country. Even from listening to that news clip, it would be easy to see this report as a way to apportion blame to hold agencies accountable. But the convener of the submission, Abdur Razak, was quick to correct that. I must uh, preamble by correcting something you said. We are not sort of blaming anybody here. We found some structural defic uh, deficiencies in the entire, across the board, in various government agencies, as well as civil society, as well as the fourth estate. So, from those who were affected by this tragedy, what have we learned? What hard questions should we be asking of ourselves? And how can we put that knowledge to use to prevent anything like this from ever happening again? David Williams is a newsroom.co.nz reporter based in Christchurch. He was in Christchurch on March the 15th. He was at the scene and he's been covering it ever since. FIANS is an umbrella group, so it's the head of seven regional associations. Uh, so it's a small part of the Muslim community in New Zealand, but it's one of the official groups. They're an important voice, if you like, and FIANS, one of their regional associations is Canterbury, and of course Al Noor Mosque uh, was one of the mosques targeted in March 15. They went to their uh, young leaders of the future and said, um, this is a piece of work we'd like to do. They put together a team of a couple of dozen people and said, well, this is your job. So we want to go through and we want to analyse what it is that has happened here through all of the public sources. Uh, and these are professionals, but also postgrads, uh, people still at university and reading the report, very competent people who have put together an analysis of from the public sources, what has happened, but also an idea of what 
happens now? What changes would be necessary in society? Based on the information that we have to date, obviously the Royal Commission has heard a lot more than what uh, the public knows right now, and put together some recommendations. And, and they didn't just do that in isolation. They then took their draft report to their association. So they went up and down the country and said, here is what we've found and what we'd, uh, we thought we'd say. Uh, what's important to you? And so they went through another kind of process there, uh, testing it with the community. And they also actually went to the police and to the SIS, actually. Quite a thorough process that took seven months, and then they presented twice to the Royal Commission, uh, once the draft and then the final version of their report, which actually was as kind of two reports, if you like. One is more academic, uh, and the other is uh, much more an easy read more publicly digestible. In brief, what areas does it canvas? I guess the, the thing that struck me about it was it was very much inward looking. It was looking at us. It was looking at New Zealand rather than focusing on the terrorist. I think it kind of went in both directions, to be honest, uh, because an important part of what happened is what this guy did. And we now have the benefit of the sentencing hearing of the terrorist. And so actually, after this report was finished, I think that timing is right, we now know a bit more about the background of the terrorist. And at least there were comment- there was commentary by the judge in that high court sentencing to say that he was radicalised during his trips to Europe. And so that's actually an important piece of background. So that it does actually touch on some of the background of the terrorist himself. And that's also an important part when analysing what the agencies did. So if you think, okay, well, here is a guy that came to New Zealand. He didn't have a job. He didn't really know anybody. He didn't have a history of gun collection or didn't even belong to a gun club. Yet here he is applying for a gun licence. Also, what about customs? He had fairly unusual travel habits, uh, if you like. He went through Europe and he went to some of the the sites where uh, Christians and Muslims over the centuries have clashed. Um, And he continued his travelling after he moved to New Zealand. So he moved to New Zealand in late 2017. And then late in 2018, uh, he went on another foray, including to North Korea. So there's an argument to be made, perhaps, that somebody who visits places like this might be worth having a look at if you're an intelligence agency. So there's two things there. So if you run the gamut, that was customs, that was police, and the SIS, uh, if they're looking in the right direction. And I guess uh, that's another theme that comes through. I mean, were the intelligence agencies looking in the right direction? And there was a lot of commentary in this report to say, based on the annual reports, and, and it's got to be said that the sourcing of this, a lot of it was mainstream media reports, including RNZ, and um, there's been some great reporting in the last couple of years about uh, what we knew, Uh, and the reaction of the intelligence agencies to information. So should they have been looking in uh, the the right-wing extremism area? Uh, And if they had of two or three or four years ago, what difference would that have made? I guess it's, it's, it's a hypothesis. We will never know. But the argument now is, um, yes, they should have been looking in that direction and it's important to uh, to do that because look at what they're turning up since March 15 and all of the arrests and convictions that have happened after that. 
The beliefs of a white supremacist who has compared himself to Adolf Hitler's deputy were laid bare in a Christchurch court today as he was jailed for spreading footage of the mosque attacks. Philip Arps, who runs Beneficial Insulation, a firm that uses neo-Nazi imagery, was sent to prison for 21 months after admitting two charges of distributing objectionable publications. Maybe you can always trace this back to sort of perhaps 9-11, the idea that the only people who carry out terrorist attacks are Islamic extremists and that perhaps that is an idea that kind of pervaded many countries and that they became blinkered to the realities of the world, that that was a convenient sort of attitude to hold and that sort of led to tunnel vision, I guess, almost. I think you've got you've cracked onto something there, and that is something that's mentioned in the report, the fact that if we look in isolation at the Security Intelligence Service and Rebecca Kitteridge's speeches, they went through those, and she would take a balanced line. She would say, well, point of fact, not all extremism or terrorism is Islamic extremism or terrorism. But in the same speech, she would say, this is a speech that we referred to in the story uh, that she gave in 2016 at Victoria University, well... She said uh, that a a terrorism attack in New Zealand would be a major blow for the Muslim community. And by saying that, of course she's saying that a terrorism attack, if it happened, would come from that community. Mm. And so you can hear the bias if you go through that kind of thing. And, And there is an argument that there has been some blinkering, but you can't argue that necessarily for our Five Eyes partners. I don't know that I read a lot in the submission about Australia and the kind of intelligence they might have shared with New Zealand, Australia being an important country because, of course, the terrorists came from there. But if you look at the rise of right-wing extremism and terrorism, there are attacks all over Europe. So a lot of our intelligence partners in Europe could have been sharing information. Just read the news. Right-wing extremism and all these attacks, they're on the rise. Look at America. So you could argue the other way, that, in fact, there was so much in the public domain about the rise of right-wing extremism, that that is something we should have taken more heed of. And so I guess from the Royal Commission report itself, it will be interesting to hear what we can learn about the focus of the intelligence services, where they were getting their, well, how they set their national priorities and how right-wing extremism appears to have just slipped off the list until very recently. I think Mm. I'm right in saying that there was... Uh, in the nine months leading up to the attack, they they did say they have mentioned right-wing extremism and that they were starting to put together some work on that, but um, it seemed quite initial. It was fairly embryonic by the time March 15 came around. We analysed the whole thing and we distilled it down to one basic concept. It was the concept that there was a securitization of Islam, which means Islam was seen as a threat and Muslims were the focus. So we see that rhetoric in the documentation and the annual reports, as well as the speeches by the uh, Director General of the Security Intelligence Service, when, for example, at one, uh, the entire landscape, uh, the threatscape of um, internationally, where the right-wing extremism was uh, increasing, and the Islamic terrorists were decreasing, there was hardly any mention of it in, this, uh, in the New Zealandscape. So they were over-concentrating on on focusing on Muslims. For example, in 2018, 100% of the right-wing extremist murders in the U.S. was by right-wing extremists. 
Uh, yet in New Zealand, there was no such focus taking place. We saw one report, uh, one sentence in September, where there was a gradual increase. In, in other words, the entire threatscape was not being looked at at all. So when you're not looking for something, you will never find it. Another sort of recurring theme is that there was an extraordinary sense of naivety from from New Zealand, I guess, and that you know, like something like this could never happen here. What you know, why would it happen in New Zealand? Clearly, there were elements of society who were deeply troubled and deeply uncomfortable with what was happening within New Zealand. And so, sure, there are elements of society who, uh, like myself, uh, I'll include myself, you know, swan around and don't particularly get challenged. I'm a, a white person. I'm, uh, I guess, middle-aged. <laughs> don't like saying that. Um, but, you know, I lead a fairly unchallenged life, if you like, whereas a lot of people in New Zealand, that's not their experience. Mm. They experience racism all the time, every day. There were people who were banging on the doors of officials for years, officials and police and others, to say, and ministers, to say, we have a real problem here. And you could see that from the Islamic Women's Council submission. Here is lawyer Francis Joychild. The women, Muslim women in New Zealand, who are the visible face because wearing the hijab of Islam became subject to an enormous amount of public abuse. This happened at bus stops, on public transport, supermarkets, walking along streets. And so the Islamic women were aware that there was a growing level of threat against the Muslim community. They started approaching government to ask for certain things to be done. They had meetings with senior officials and they, and when we did an official information at request, there haven't even been records kept of half of these meetings. Uh, but also the story that they've been talking about since March 15. In fact, I think it was either the day of the attack or the day after that Andrum Rahman uh, came out and uh, said... We engaged in as many ways as we could. We went to Wellington several times. We engaged through teleconferences... We visited with the SIS, we visited with DPMC, uh, we visited ministers in the uh, previous government as well as the current government, and I do not feel that we were taken seriously. So for some of New Zealand, um, we, yeah, we live a fairly unchallenged life, but I think that for a lot of people in New Zealand, they would have looked at that sector of society and said, but we've been saying, and this is not our experience, and not all of New Zealand feels that way. The submission does reveal some new information, I think it's new information, about the gun licence application. How did this show up, inconsistencies or, or, or weaknesses in our process? Yeah, I mean, considering that... The primary sources of this are mainstream media reports. Uh, I don't know how new it is, to be honest, but it is striking what has been found. Um, so the referee, I mean, the story has been around for a while. The, the referees were apparently reportedly a father and a son, um, and that was actually confirmed by the com- a minute from the Royal Commission last week when the report was handed to the Governor-General. Their work was done. They laid out... Um, finally, what their suppressions would be. And one of those suppressions was for, I think they called it the gaming friend's, the gaming friend and the gaming friend's parent was the way that they uh, referred to those people who were the referees for the gun licence. So that's one thing. 
the fact they didn't follow their own uh, protocols for gun licensing. Um, and then you could argue, well, if they followed the rest of their protocols, were they good enough in the first place? And so what they're referring to here is you're going to interview a person who wants a gun license, and again, they've just come from overseas, they don't really know anybody. From what we know of the possessions in his house, it was fairly spartan existence in Dunedin, in his rented property. He didn't have much in the way of possessions, didn't have a job, wasn't seeking employment, didn't have a source of income. Uh, or a history with guns, gun collection, um, or gun clubs, yet he wants a gun. And then once you get a license, you can buy ammunition. Well, there's a form that was signed off by police for a lot of rounds. I think that um, the judge in September said that it was there was something like 7,000 rounds of ammunition. Well, that's a lot of ammunition. Yeah. Um, the form that I saw from the Founds report was 2,000 rounds of ammunition for various rifles, but I think maybe AR-15 was at least half of that. And so, again, is there enough thinking involved or is there too much form-filling when it comes to something like gun licensing? And um, that's something that the Royal Commission report must touch on, um, and you would think any government would do some hard thinking about. Yeah, I guess, as you say, when you sort of link all the threads together, you know, like here's a guy who's moved to New Zealand, has no connection to the place, he has no job, he has no source of income, he's just been travelling around, you know, a whole bunch of countries visiting the sites of historic inter-religious battles around the world. I mean, it makes sense now, doesn't it, you know? Hindsight's a great thing, right? Yeah, exactly. When you look at it in hindsight, it's like, how could I not see this in the first place? Yeah, well, that's true, Uh, but... You could argue that if they had been looking, it would have been in plain sight. He didn't just operate in the physical world, and of course you could argue that there were issues with the gun club. There were complaints to police, according to reports, about the gun club itself. And what did the police do with that? Um, And you can't... Somebody who holds views like that and is going about their day-to-day life, they're going to interact with people, and you kind of wonder, well... If you hold those kind of extreme views, at what point did people or otherwise say complain about their behaviour or maybe pass on their suspicions to people in authority and what was done about that? Not necessarily for this man, but he also had an online presence. And so a, a way of finding out about people these days, you would think, is fairly easily is, is to go to social media, to go to the places where, uh, the dark parts of the web, where people like this hang out and talk to each other. I don't know what the ability is of intelligence services to follow those places. Um, I mean, given the traffic of the internet, probably pretty hard, but also the access they would have to other places through warrants and whatever. We have to ask ourselves, first off, were we looking in the right place? And and, and I mean, we authorities. Uh, and were those authorities, if they had have looked in the right place, what would they have found? And could this have prevented the attack? And that's, I guess, the whole job of a royal commission. Um, not that obviously can't prevent the horrible attack from last year, but how can we make sure that that kind of thing never happens again? The role of the media is touched on in this submission. Tell me a bit about that. Well, yeah, and if you bring that forward to this week, uh, stuff have looked into their past and they've apologised to Māori for their reporting over the years. 
which is a, a very important thing to do. And this is what we need to do with our reporting all the time. Look back, uh, see who was hurt by it and, and whether we were reporting the best way we could, the fair and balanced and objective way. And you you can't, I mean, the, the research is out there in multiple countries, including New Zealand, that this happens, that reporting is very skewed, very slanted, uh, and you could argue that of powerful institutions that face accusations about being um, institutionally racist or biased, uh, too white, the media, look at us. It's it's hard to uh, overlook. Uh, so yes, in terms of a particular article, well, there was this article uh, following the death of a couple of uh, people by drone strike in Yemen, and their family in Australia did say that they were radicalised in a mosque in Christchurch, which is the Elnor Mosque. And so the local paper, the Christchurch Press, reported that. And there was some balance in the story, it's fair to say. But of course, people are attracted to headlines. The headline, I think, was something like, you know, terrorist radicalised at Christchurch Mosque. So that would be their enduring memory of that, perhaps. Um, and there was a suggestion that the terrorist himself had read that and had said that the history of extremism was one of his justifications, not that we need to indulge in the fantasies of madmen. But the power of the media and the responsibility of media, um, we need to think about the way that we've reported in the past, and and research shows that that is something that we've done. So we're not immune either, and we need to do something about that. Um, In terms of that, in our reporting, we need to be just a bit more intelligent about that and to school up and to talk. You know, it was great to see in that stuff investigation into itself uh, that the uh, Naitahu, the local tribe, said what a rare thing it was for a journalist to go onto the marae and, and talk to them about that. Well, that's where we need to, you know, approach the mosques and as reporters we do, but as an industry, you know, what are we doing about this? Mm. It's... um something that we should be thinking about. Yeah. Well, I mean, we have a big responsibility, don't we? A lot of people's impressions of of other people come from the news media, particularly when it's, when yes. it's minority groups, right? And, and that is a tremendous responsibility to make sure that you're not being lazy or stupid or... or well, and reinforcing bias. Yeah. And it's hard to do when you're a... Uh, and you could see it in the reporting from the stuff papers of old. When you're a... A, a kind of a white newspaper writing for white people. Yeah. Um, and that's where diversity of employment is important in media organisations. Some are better than others. But that's where you can have voices that will challenge the way that reporting is done. Without that diversity of, um, of staff and diversity of thought, you can't have that. That's it for today. I'm Emile Donovan. The detail is brought to you by newsroom.co.nz and made possible by RNZ and NZ On Air. You can get us downloaded free to your mobile device every weekday from any podcast platform. And if you're using Apple, please leave us a rating so others can find us too. Today's episode was engineered by Blair Stagpole and produced by Alexia Russell. And thanks to David Williams. Matewa. Mm-hmm.